Well, you know, we have the Bible in English from uh, Greek when you're looking at the New Testament and some Aramaic. Just imagine if we had to go from Greek and Aramaic to English to pry. And yet what we're going to try to do here, not to be uh, funny, but we're going to try to pry the meaning (laughs) out of uh, this text. You know, we're in the... third week of our study of Galatians, which is all about the rescue, and yet we're still in the first part of the first chapter, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for it did not, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Nobody knows when Paul was born. One of the guesses is he was born five years after Jesus. At 29, he's blinded on the road to Damascus. 34 years later, he's executed in Rome. Jesus had said, I will show him the full extent of the suffering he will do for my sake. And when he's 63 years old, he experiences the full suffering. He's executed under the Caesar Nero. Somebody has said that uh, to draw a starker distinction between two people, Paul and Nero, is not possible. Nero was sitting on his throne. He was known throughout the empire. Paul was an obscure Jew in a distant corner of the Roman Empire. Virtually no one had heard of Paul and everyone had heard of Nero. And yet 2,000 years later... We name our sons Paul, and we name our dogs Nero. (laughs) And yet for Paul, um, it wasn't Paul that mattered. It was all the gospel. In fact, Paul uses that word gospel more than any other New Testament writer. He uses it 60 times. You know, the apostle John used it once. Luke used it twice. Matthew uses it four times, and Mark uses it seven times. Paul uses it 60 times. And you know where he gets it? From Isaiah. 600 years before Paul lived, Isaiah was called by God to preach to Israel, who was in deepest despair. They had had a colossal defeat. They had taken, been taken to exile. They were cut off from their traditions. They were the laughingstock of the world. And the Lord says to Isaiah, say this, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry 
to her that her welfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Get up on a high mountain. Herald good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Hear the good or glad tidings. Behold your God. Now normally that's a Christmas text. And you know what the word glad tidings is translated as in Hebrew and in Greek gospel? Good news. Think of it. When God first proclaims the gospel, 600 years before Christ, it's a shadow. And what he says to his people is, I want to give you the gospel. Good news. Your iniquity is pardoned. Everything is okay. But it's only a shadow. It's not until you get to the cross that God fully discloses the good news of the gospel. And you know, Paul understands it, and yet people who are luminary throughout history didn't. You know what Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher said? He said, Paul tore Christianity away from Christ. He completely turned it upside down. Robert Frost, the poet, said, Paul's in the Bible, and he's the one who theologizes Christ right out of Christianity. You know what Thomas Jefferson said? Paul is the first century corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. You know what Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, said? Saul's fanatical resistance to Christianity was not entirely overcome. It is frankly disappointing to see how Paul hardly allows the real Jesus to get a word in edgewise. Now that's just four. I mean, there's at least 40 well-known people throughout history who said Paul and Christianity don't mix. You know why? Because they wanted Jesus as an example, not as a rescuer. They want Jesus as a teacher of crowds, not the Lord of the cross. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? I determined when I came to you to know one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Well, Carl Jung might not like it, but every Christian should because the gospel is all about the cross. And that's why Paul deviates in this letter from any other letter he writes. Normally he starts with a thanksgiving. I thank God for you. But you know what he says to the Galatians? I'm astonished at you. There's no thanksgiving. I, Paul, an apostle, not by men, but by God, I'm astonished at you. You know why he's astonished? Because for 2,000 years, men and women called of God lived under a system of religion based on the law. In their minds, to keep the law meant that you were earning the favor of God. Now, God had designed the law to keep them dependent on Him, but they used the law to stress their independence from God. Instead of using the law to drive them to God, they used the law to drive them away from God, and so did the Galatians. Listen to what Paul says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him. In other words, I'm surprised that you are leaving so quickly. He knows people will leave. He knows the default position of every human heart is to trust in religion rather than a relationship. He knows the natural tendency of every one of us is to move from focusing on what God has done to what we should do. And nowhere is that clearer than here in this first few verses 
of chapter 1. He talks about it by laying out the real gospel. Now, we've talked about it for two weeks. Let's talk about one more time. Let's get into it. First of all, notice the call of the gospel. Verse 6 again. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, I have a friend who gives his testimony almost every week, and he's honed it. He talks about a time years ago when he went down many steps and he came to the place where he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And his testimony is like most testimonies from Christians that you hear these days. There's a point at which I came to accept Christ. I gave my heart to Jesus. But I think it's interesting that Paul never talks about his conversion that way. Listen to what he says in verse 16. When God was pleased to reveal himself to me. He never says when I accepted Jesus. He never says when I gave my stuff to Jesus. He says when God was pleased to reveal Himself to me. You see, His focus is not on Paul, it's on God. It's not on what Paul did, it's what God has done. And Paul is simply a responder to that. You know, when I was growing up, my mother, like almost every mother, called me for dinner. And, you know, she'd call me, and and I think the first few times she called me, I came quickly. And then I found out she was lying. She said, Doug, dinner's ready, and I'd go there, and it's not ready. I mean, it's five minutes away at least. And so I changed. I wait till the fourth or fifth call. Because I know she's lying. It's not ready. And I actually got to point where I was able to attune my ear to the tenor, the pitch. Doug, dinner's ready. Doug, dinner's ready. Doug, dinner's ready. And that's when I'd come. And I knew that if I, if my dad came to get me, I'd waited too long. (laughs) You see, that's what we understand call as. I called and they either didn't answer or did answer. But that's not at all what Paul means by the word call. The word is kaleo in Greek, and it means to determine. What Paul is saying is, I'm astonished at how quickly you deserted the one who determined you as his. God has determined you. He didn't wait for you to accept him. He accepted you. That's exactly what Jesus means when he says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Think about Genesis 1. God says, let there be light. How long did it take? (laughs) As soon as he said it. How about Mark chapter 4? Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. The sea is raging. The waves are high. The wind's blowing. And what does he do? He stands up and says, peace be still. How long did it take? As soon as that last syllable exited his mouth, the wind died down. You see, Paul says the gospel begins with God. He calls. That call is never determined by our response. He determines to call us. It's not a human decision. It's not like coming to dinner. It's a divine declaration where he says, you are mine. And what Paul is saying to the Galatians is, he called you. He determined your rescue. You're the product of his action. I love what Jonathan Edwards called it. He said, the great disturbance. What Paul is saying, don't you remember he called you? Why then? 
Having come out of lostness into foundness, why are you acting as though it never happened? Second, notice the content of the gospel. Look at verse 9. As we said before, now we say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now notice how Paul describes the gospel coming to them. He says it's been revealed. He says it comes as a gift. You see, in every way it's God's doing. And yet the enemies of the gospel are saying the opposite. You know what they're saying? And he talks about it in verse 7. He says, why are you listening to those who distort the gospel? You know what that word in distort means in Greek? It literally means to turn inside out. Why are you listening to those who are turning the gospel inside out? You say, how are they turning it inside out? They're switching the order. They are saying you must obey the law, you must repent, you must prove your seriousness to God, and He will reward you with His grace. Now, that's what Martin Luther believed. The history of the Reformation proves it. He spent hours in confession. It's said that he wore out nearly a dozen confessors, confessing his sin. He confessed every sin he knew. He confessed sins he didn't know. Hour upon hour. And he'd receive absolution from these priests. And finally, they basically said, leave me alone, I'm tired of you. Why did he confess like that? Because he knew God was holy. He knew God can't even look on sin. He knew that God required repentance. So what does he do? He spent days and weeks and months confessing his sin. He confessed every sin he knew. He confessed every sin he didn't know. And while his confessors gave him absolution, Luther didn't buy it because Luther knew. He was just scratching the surface. And then one day he's in Rome. He's climbing up those ladder and steps on his knees spending an hour at every step. And halfway up, it is said that he remembered the words of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He ran off those steps, went all the way back to Germany, and the Reformation began. Suddenly he saw the order. The order is not what I do and God rewards me with grace. The order is God gives me His grace and changes me. Last week after my sermon, I heard two comments. One person said, who was angry, said, so if Jesus is the only one to ever hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, what is, what's there for me to do? I mean, nothing? Am I supposed to do nothing? I mean, can't just sit here idly by? The other was from a woman who I'd never met, but she said, as I listened to your sermon today, two quotes came to mind. Trust him with your inability to trust him. He cannot love you any more or any less than he does right now. What a comfort. You see the difference? His rescue is not a license for us to be lazy. His rescue is a motivation for us to serve Jesus joyfully because we don't have to earn anything. We simply delight in the one who's given us everything he's earned. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. And you know, one of the ways you know that you're coming to know the grace and knowledge of Jesus more and more, you know how you begin to understand that you're understanding a little bit more of the gospel? The gospel becomes more and more amazing to you. It keeps moving you from what you do 
to what he's already done. Third, notice the crisis of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. You see, there's a cosmic dimension to the gospel. Remember what Luther said before God created the world? He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high God. And then when God casts him out of heaven and down to earth, what does he do? He begins to tempt those created in the image of God to do what he's done. And when Adam and Eve succumb to that temptation, Satan thinks he's won, but Martin Luther knows he hasn't won. Remember what Martin Luther says, one little word will fell him, Satan. You see, he knew what Genesis 3.15 meant. He knows about the cross, and so does Paul. At the cross, the second Adam defeats that same enemy who thought he was victorious in the garden. At the cross, Jesus not only satisfies the holiness of his Father, he also frees us from the dominion of the devil. In 1966, a couple of years before Dave and Fran started translating the Bible, Don Black and Matt Monroe wrote a song that was about a lion, but men and women began to adopt it. You know some of the words, born free, as free as the wind blows. Born free, as free as the grass grows. Born free to follow your heart. That's what the song said. That's what a lot of people believe, but it's a a lie. No one's born free. Every man, woman, and child, it must be rescued. None of us are free. We're enslaved to two needs. The need to be loved and to love, and the need for worth. And from the time we're born, we go on an insatiable search to have those needs met. First, we start with mom and dad. Then we move to a peer group, and then maybe to a lover or two, and then maybe just maybe to a spouse or to children or to grandchildren. The search never ends because none of us is self-accrediting. No one is freed by their own efforts. Everyone is locked in that crisis until we're rescued. You know what Jesus says to us? I'm the only one that can meet those needs. Not just for a day or a week or your life, but forever. That's why Luther said we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves, lest we grow discouraged. We've got those needs. We're always trying to seek to meet them. And what we have to remind ourselves of as Christians is Jesus has already met them. And then fourth, and finally, notice the communion. Look at verse 6 again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called us. In other words, you're deserting not a religion. You're deserting a relationship. I love what Spurgeon says. The one who towers above all men, the one who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separated from sinners, the one who no other, the one who is no other than the eternal God, before whom angels hide their face, this man against every transgression, this man, every transgression is committed against, this man came and rescued us at the price of his own damnation. You see, Paul knows that the gospel is personal. God isn't some holy other. He's not some distant deity. He's not some immobile force. God is a man who became our Savior and our Lord, the one who died for us, the one who lives for us, the one who is our Father 
and brother and Lord. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And that's why he's astonished that we desert that. 300 years ago in England, a man named Robert lost his father. At age 14, his mother sent him to London to be a barber. As soon as he gets there, he doesn't go to barber school. He runs with a gang. For three years, he runs for a gang. He's one of the notorious criminals of London. And then one night, George Whitfield is preaching, and this Robert goes and hears him, and he's converted. He leaves the streets and goes to school, and over a couple of years, he becomes a pastor and a theologian and a hymn writer. And after many years of ministry, he laps again into sin and he leaves the ministry. And then one day, he's on a stagecoach. And a woman is sitting there with a hymnal and she's humming a hymn that is right in front of her. And suddenly she looks at him and says, have you ever heard this one? And through tears, Robert said, Madam, I would give a thousand worlds if I could know the joy and the freedom I knew when I wrote those words. You know what the last verse says? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And the truth is all of us are prone to wander. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is? He never wanders. He never will leave us. You know the proof? In that man's case, he put him on a stagecoach with a woman who was humming one of his hymns. You see, you may lose the God. If you lose the gospel, you lose him. And the good news is he never loses us. Do you want to know him better? Do you want more of him and less of you? If that's true, it's because he called you. He called you as his own. I can't think of a greater comfort than that to know that in the darkest moments of your life, He is right there. He never leaves you, and He never leaves you to fend for yourself. You know what else? Whoever He calls, He always takes all the way home. Now, that's the gospel, that's the only gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing else like it. Think about that. Amen.